Morning. What up? My name is Derek. I'm the pastor. I don't walk very well on ice. That's why I'm wearing this. Uh, but if you are here last week, this is kind of an upgrade. I had like the whole strap-on, I don't know, tourniquet. I don't know what they call it. But uh, everything's healing. Went to the ortho. They were showing me the x-rays. Anybody ever look at their own x-rays and not know what they're looking at? It's kind of the way I felt. He invited me to come look at it. I'm staring at them. He's pointing at stuff I don't see, like the pictures that you can't see the picture in the picture. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? They just put them in the mall. Nobody? Okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm basically lying to him. Do you see this hairline fracture? Yep. Nope. So, anyway. Um, it's good to see you. Just a couple of bits of, uh, of news coming up. If you are interested in going on the Mexico house building trip, uh, I know a bunch of you have shown interest in that. There's going to be a quick, another quick informational meeting and just a catch-up meeting right down here by the uh, clothing drive uh, that we've got going on for Jesus Place Inner City Mission as well. So that was like two plugs in one. That was interesting. But, um, <laughs> but they're going to be right down there right after this service. And so if you're interested uh, in finding out more about that, then, then go for it uh, right after the service. Secondly, uh, you'll hear this again at the end, but we have this uh, place, this space for you. Uh, if you're a guest, we'd love to meet you and get to know you uh, a little bit. You can introduce yourself, but uh, someone will come up and tell you more about that at the end, but it's just kind of out this door and down the hall, and so just, if you're a guest, just keep that in your mind if you'd like to uh, get a free cookie or something. You can do that. All right. Are you ready? Today's my son's birthday. He's nine, so we're on the back nine now. Um, (laughs) Anybody else have a birthday today that's in here? Not a child. Anybody? How about this week? Anybody got a birthday this week? This month? We got any? One? Phil? Okay, you get a present. So we've been, I've been, we, I've been reading a little bit each week from this little book called The New Neighbor, and uh, I'm actually reading another excerpt today, so you get a copy. So come on up, Phil. Let's give it up for Phil. Birthday. <laughs> 21 years old. That's good. <laughs> All right, Mark chapter 10. Are you ready? Here we go. Uh, This is a wonderful story. Um, I told last service that I've never preached on this story, which is amazing. I did so many years in youth ministry, and I never preached on this text, which is about Jesus and kids. Um, So that's interesting. There really aren't a lot of youth ministry passages. The only other one I know of is the one in the Old Testament where the bear kills all the teenagers. That's the only other one I know of. Um, which always works well in certain situations. Um, But yeah, I want to talk through this in just a moment, so if you will, Mark chapter 10. Let me bring you up to speed on what we're doing. We're in this series called uh, Neighboring, Where You Live Matters, as you can see on the screen, Uh, and the doors behind me sort of represent we all have neighbors somewhere next to us, around us, above us, below us, down the hall, down the street from us. And uh, the, the base of this series is those people matter, and where you live matters, and God has much to say about this thing that we're calling neighboring. Uh, love your neighbors yourself is the key command, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's kind of the center of this series. And so uh, we decided to take the word neighbor and just make it into, we think, we debated that now it's a gerund, but I'm not quite sure. So if you're an English major, you can help me out. But neighboring, uh, where you live matters. And uh, one of the things I like about 
The one thing I like about the command, and also it's a struggle, is that love your neighbor as yourself is personal. It's not like just this sweeping love people. The command in both the Old and the New Testament is the word neighbor. And neighbor uh, is this picture of someone that's close by. And it's this picture of someone who lives and does life with you, around you. Maybe you work with them. There's sort of this corporate neighborhood that we all live in as well. Uh, where you see these same people and you do life with these people every day. And so it's both, it's basically the people that you do life with or around each and every day, and you see them. Even if you don't know them, but they're near you, God is saying that's, that's a neighbor. And so the command is very personal, which makes it also a struggle because it kind of puts, kind of puts the ball in our court, like we've got we've to do this thing. So we decided to take a few weeks and just talk about what it means to be a neighbor. We started the series, of course, with the story of the Good Samaritan. You can't do a series about neighboring without doing that story that Jesus told, simply because the story was told because a guy asked, well, who is my neighbor? Define for me, Jesus, who my neighbor is. And I love the story because in the story, or through the story, Jesus basically says the question is wrong. Who is my neighbor is the wrong question. The answer is quite obvious. It's anybody that's a person, anybody that's near you, it's a neighbor. So Jesus actually teaches through the story that the question needs to be shifted to not who is my neighbor, but how can I live like a neighbor? How can I be a neighbor? How can neighbor become something that I do and not something that someone is? And so uh, we looked at that the first week. Last week we talked about how neighboring, really one of the first components of being a neighbor is having a vision, having eyes that see people. Basically other people exist. Like we have to kind of move through life realizing that and understanding that these people live, they, they exist. They're in my life, and so I have to see them. We passed out these cards at the end of the service. Did anybody do the neighborhood walk, by the way, that was here last week? Okay, highly depressing. Um, <laughs> okay, we'll just do last week's sermon. Let me back up. Wait, I don't have it. All right, um, but we challenge you to basically move around your neighborhood this past week and just look and see and just kind of see and listen uh, to maybe... Uh, some dreams and visions that God may give you just from opening your eyes to things that maybe you haven't looked at before. Um, when we put the series together, the goal was and still is very simple, and that's just to inspire you and me to take this love your neighbor as yourself and figure out how that actually works in everyday life. Um, some people have asked, and maybe you wondered, and we asked this question too when we built the series, and the question was, is this, a, is this a series about inviting people to a Christian church buckhead? In other words, is there a week in here where we talk about, do we give people tools to do that? And again, we didn't know the answer for a while, but then we, at the end of the day, we said, it's not a series about that. It, this is not, you'll never hear me say, there's not like this sort of bait and switch, like, okay, do this and do this and do this, and then, then you make the big ass, like come to church, you know, like that's not what... Uh, I just said big ask, by the way. I'm worried about how that's going to sound on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Whew. Sorry. Um, so it's not about that. And as an aside, that should be something that's always happening. Uh, that should be the culture of our church community, is that we are constantly saying to people, why don't you come and see what it is that God is doing but this series is more about not the entrance, but the exit. What do we do when we leave this place 
and go back into the communities where we live and honestly spend most of our time, which is not here. I mean, if you're committed, you're here like three hours a month. So this is not the world that we live in. And so this series is about out there and what happens. Today, I want to talk about this. Neighboring takes what? It takes time, which is fun to talk about because most of us don't feel like we have any time. Uh, We live in a culture where it's just difficult and hard to imagine spending any more time with any more people. And this is kind of the, the place we live in in history right now. How many times have you been in a conversation with somebody face-to-face and they're also texting somebody? Like, what is that? Like, you're not interesting enough. What you're saying isn't interesting. It might not be interesting. I don't know. But somehow we have got, we have so many connections and so many irons in the fire that we just don't even have time for any more. And so we're trying to manage this chaotic, you know, connected schedule and network of people. And so when you see something like neighboring just takes time, it's just, it's hard to imagine spending any more time with people. But the truth is that relationships with people that have deep and divine impact, they take time. They're formed slowly through intentional hospitality. They're not drive-by relationships. Uh, That's a good quote from Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone is his book. He's from Harvard. Neighborhood parties and get-togethers with friends, the unreflective kindness of strangers, the shared pursuit of the public good rather than the quest for private good have strangely gone missing from American life. We were joking in our small group last week talking about the uh, winter invasion that we had, which sent me to the ER. Thank you. Um, And someone was sharing about how their friend kept posting on Facebook, I need eggs, I need milk, I need, you know, all these things. And someone put back on their, you know, they posted back, why don't you just go next door? Like they were trying to round up some sort of coalition through Facebook, and someone just fired back going, "Um, why don't you just walk next door and maybe they have an egg? And it's sort of like this, oh, I didn't think about from that door to that door. We just don't think about it. It's just strangely gone missing from our culture. Now, I've sat through a bunch of time management sermons, and they've made me throw up, so this is not a time management sermon, because the Bible actually has nothing to say about time management. In fact, it almost comes across like it's okay just to waste your time. The only time management, life management teaching I know of in the Scriptures is the one about the Sabbath. And if you were here in April of last year, we all know how that can just be quite a lightning rod of a topic. But that's the only one I know of. But what the Bible does talk about in regards to time is not so much managing the time, but this is something to write down today. It's about redeeming your time. Taking the time that you have or the time that you have in your life and not just managing it, but somehow redeeming it. Redeeming the time. Taking things that come your way and making the most of them. In other words, taking what could just be a dead piece of time and breathing life into it. Not looking over it or past it, but just redeeming it. So all that to say, let's get into the story. Mark chapter 10. This story, by the way, appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, which is a signal for the reader that this one matters. A lot of stories only appear in 
one of the Gospels, but this one makes all three, or all the first three. I don't know why it's not in John. Maybe John was writing his Gospel, and God spoke to John and said, really, we don't need a fourth. I don't know. But uh, it's already in print and running around. But this one is in all three, which again tells us that this one, there's some importance here. Now the setting, and let me just set this up for you before we read it. Um, Jesus, his disciples, and anyone else in Israel that was, was able to, uh, they were heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, feast and festivals. It's a celebration where the city fills up with Jews. Um, history differs on how many people would get into Jerusalem during the Passover, but it's pretty, it's pretty heavy. Josephus was born about the time Jesus died, and he was a Jewish historian. He says something like three-quarters to a million people would make their way into Jerusalem, which is a big, that's a big deal. You're talking about a million people flooding into a place the size of Savannah. So it's packed. Some conservatives' estimates are 200,000, 500,000 at the most. There's a later rabbinic writing way down the line. 12 million people, (laughs) which is really just a way of saying everybody went to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Of course, everybody didn't, but if you could get there, it was a great way to spend Passover. If you could celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, that was special. You could celebrate it anywhere, but if you could get there, it was special. I mean, it's like New Year's. You can celebrate New Year's anywhere, but man, if you can celebrate it in McDonough and watch Chick-fil-A drop the nugget at midnight. (laughs) That's true, y'all. Am I lying? Anybody from McDonough down here? Yeah, they drop that nugget. You know what they drop it into? Sauce. (laughs) The church I used to work for was right across the street from the one that did that, and man, I refuse to go every year. Are we going to take the youth group to Truett's to watch? No, we're not. (laughs) It's just gross. All right. So they're headed to Jerusalem. Now, both the disciples and the Jesus, the Jesus, Jesus, they have, uh, there are different reasons why they're going to Jerusalem in their own minds. The disciples feel, they believe, that when they get to Jerusalem, that Jesus will become king. He's been talking a lot about the kingdom this God's kingdom. And so they feel and believe that this is the moment when Jesus will take over, for lack of a better phrase. He'll just take over. He'll sit on the throne. This is how they've been thinking for a long time. James and John, the two brothers in the, in the group of disciples. Uh, Jesus nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. Sceva is the actual word, the sons of Sceva. Great nickname. Um, they asked Jesus, they said to him, uh, Lord, We want you to give us anything that we ask for, which is a great way to talk to God. And Jesus humors them and says, what is it that you want? And they said to him, we want to sit on your right and your left in your kingdom. This is how they thought. Earthly kingdom, power, status. So they're thinking when they get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to go down. Jesus will take over, Jesus will lead, Jesus will become king. Jesus, on the other hand, knows that this trip to Jerusalem will end in his death. This is what he knows. God made him also human. So this is a heavy burden for him. If you know much of the stories from the final week of Christ's life, you know that the night before he died, he prays, 
asking God to uh, maybe change the idea. Get me out of this gig. I, I don't want to do it. I mean, I'll do it, but I don't want to do it. So this is what's on Jesus' heart. The disciples, they're all ready for, like, the kingdom. Right and left. I'll be the Senate. You be the Congress. We're just going to rule the world. Jesus knows that it's going to end in his death. And so I say all that to say there are burdens. The disciples are ready to get to Jerusalem. Jesus might be taking this a little slow. So it's in that situation that this story unfolds. Verse 13. First part of verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. So you have this scene where uh, Luke says babies, Mark says children, so you put the two together. There's a lot of kids, like a youth group, running up to Jesus. Probably the older children are bringing the babies. The moms are probably in tow, also bringing children. Now the reason that this is going on is not actually that uncommon. The mortality rate of children and babies was so high in this particular part of the world, at this particular time in history, that any religious leader that would come through town, moms would have their babies blessed and touched and prayed for and perhaps even healed by these people. Now, Jesus already has a reputation of, this guy used to be blind and now he can see. So you have this scene of desperation. Everybody's rushing Jesus to get their children blessed and prayed for and just touched. So this is what's happening with the children. The other thing that's going on culturally is that children technically don't matter in this culture. I mean, they're loved and cherished for sure, but they don't really matter to society. Not yet. In the Roman culture, a son really wouldn't become a son until he was about 18. The birthday party of a Roman 18-year-old was actually his adoption. Isn't that interesting? So he doesn't, he's not even an heir of whatever the family has until he's almost an adult. And in those days, that'd be a, quite an old adult. And so, children aren't necessarily seen as all that valuable to society. Maybe later, but not now. In the Ephesians letter, Paul writes in chapters 5 and 6, he speaks to three segments of the population. Children, women, slaves. And in that culture, those three segments were basically equal. So when we hear the word slave, everything drops down in status, doesn't it? And I know that's hard for us because we've come a long way since then, but Paul was speaking, was speaking into a culture where these three segments of the population were basically viewed as the same. A slave is no different than a child, and a child is no different than a woman, and a woman is no different than a slave. And so when he's speaking into that culture with the words he says in Ephesians 5 and 6, it's quite interesting, actually. It's a revolutionary passage, him speaking to them. And if you read it correctly, he's pulling them forward. He's pulling that story forward. The slavery would eventually, at least in that world in those times, would be non-existent among Christian circles. They would do away with it. But not at first. It takes time. And Paul speaks into that, but children, right there, no different than a servant of a house. So this is who's coming to Jesus. Insignificant, avoided, pushed aside, and pushed around children. 
Which makes the next part kind of understandable. Look on the screen. But the disciples, what? Rebuked them. So you have this sort of scene where they're... That's hard to do in a sling. But you have this scene where they are pushing the children. They're rebuking them. Now, this word rebuked is interesting. It has both a positive and negative definition. The positive is to esteem, encourage, reward, reinforce. So you have this... Like to rebuke someone can sometimes be positive. It's to push them to continue to do the same thing, right? Hebrews uh, chapter 10 kind of deals with this, talking about uh, encouraging people who just have given up on gathering together as the church. Like, that doesn't happen anymore for sure, but people who just stop coming to church, right? And so Hebrews chapter 10, and, you know, encourages saying, look, don't give up meeting together, but continue to do that. Continue to get together so that you can encourage one another and spur each other on towards love and good deeds. And so you have this positive piece, but the negative piece is very simple. It simply means to stop what's happening. This same word, rebuked, is also used when Jesus stops the storm. He rebuked the wind and the waves. It's to stop what's happening. This is the, this is the kind of rebuke that's happening with the disciples and the children. They're pushing them away, which is interesting because the disciples might be teenagers, many of them. And so they're pushing, they're stopping what's happening, and they rebuked them. Next verse. When Jesus saw this, he was, what? Indignant. That's just so much better of a word than angry, isn't it? That just sounds deep. And it is. In fact, this word's only used seven times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's coupled with this outward display of anger. Think Jesus throwing the tables around the temple. He's indignant. He's angry. Now Mark doesn't tell us what he did, but something was clear in his behavior and in his words that, okay, this guy's clearly ticked off. And he's mad not at the kids, of course, but at the disciples. And he says to them, let the little children come to me. This is the part we know. And do not 